So the harvest has become, has begun. The church has been born. And, you know, Peter speaks here. And remember back over in Matthew 16, verse 19, Jesus told Peter uh, as they were going along there that uh, he asked, who do people say that I am? And they had all these people. Some people say you're this. Some people say you're that. And, and he said, what do you say? Simon Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember, he called him the rock. That's what his name, his name Simon was changed to Peter, which is from the, in the Greek Petros. Uh, in the Hebrew or the Aramaic is Cephas, and it means a rock. And he said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, he wasn't talking about the man himself, but that statement that he made. But he told him something else there. You remember he said, and to you I give the keys of the kingdom. Remember that? He gave him that opportunity that you're the one I'm picking to open the door, open the gate. And he did that on Pentecost. Remember, he's the one that proclaimed, first of all, proclaimed the gospel to his fellow Jews. And many were saved. He's doing it again here. And then, and then he's the one that God chose to give the gospel to the Gentiles. That's the rest of all of us, of all different races, groups, and ethnics groups, every people groups, all of that. That he unlocked the door there as well in Acts chapter 10. Also, when the Samaritans, which were half Hebrew, when they received the gospel, who had to end up going there before they received the Holy Spirit? Simon Peter. And why was that? It's because the, the New Testament hasn't been written yet, and God wanted every bit of it to be able to be traced to one source, Jesus. And so Jesus said, there's this one guy. There may be other people proclaiming all kinds of stuff out there and claiming they have the gospel, but this is it. So everything that's taught traces to this guy as he unlocked the door. And those apostles, those guys that were with him and were with him after he was resurrected, that he sent out, everything traces to them, to Jesus, one source. So that's the reason why. And he presents the gospel to them. And, and, and so the scene here, as I said, is not long after Pentecost. It's still in Jerusalem. And that key element pops out right here that I want us to see uh, this morning. Uh, everybody was familiar with this lame man. Uh, in fact, maybe that was his name. Hey, there's lame man because he was lame. He was paralyzed in his legs. Uh, and as they came to this central place, everybody, you know, you're supposed to go to the temple at some time. So they all see, see him. They all know him. Uh, very familiar. So this is an illustration everybody can identify with. Everybody knows him. All right. So remember, Jesus had earlier said to his disciples when he was with them. Matthew 9, 37, 38 says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's talking about the harvest of souls, of people. He said, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's what we're talking about. And we've got to proclaim the message of that harvest. What are we to do? What are we to proclaim? And this is part of it here. Last week was part one. This is part two. Jesus also said later on in Matthew 24, 14, in this gospel, that's the good news, right, of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we wait, we're talking about all the wickedness and all the craziness and all the, you know, uh, the, the ridiculous things that seem to be happening in our world and how unstable things are. We've been reminded of that in this last year, year and a half. I mean, there are things that two years ago I thought, eh, no way that could all happen. And boom, there's things happening that I didn't think was possible, and it happened fast. Okay, so we can't put our confidence in our culture or in our world or in our economy or in our politicians. Now, come on. I thought I'd get at least one amen right there. Come on. You, you guys, you got to participate. Get in here. 
We can't put any confidence in it. So we like, well, you know, the world keeps getting more, getting more wicked and getting more crazy. He's going to have to come back and judge the world, right? You know, if, if, man, if he doesn't come back and judge the world soon, he's going to have to dig up Sodom and Gomorrah and apologize to him, right? You've heard that. Well, actually, what Jesus said is when the end's going to come is when this good news of the kingdom is proclaimed to everybody. That's what he's waiting on. And the ones that he's using are those who have already received the message by faith, who realize we weren't good enough, we didn't earn it or deserve it, but he, he still loved us. And we have received that by faith. We're the ones that are supposed to be spreading good news. Good news. Remember, good news? Gospel means good news. That word means good news. What is it talking about? It's talking about good news about salvation. I think our world really needs good news today. My problem is, is I'm afraid that too often we have not presented the gospel. We've presented something else. And I'm afraid too often in our churches as we gather, we're doing other things besides proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and the good news. Uh, so we want to keep that front and center. There are a lot of things to be taught. There are a lot of issues, but this is where it starts. Now, when you look at the way that Simon Peter gave this message, did you notice that as he gave this sermon, look at it. This is amazing. You get one of his sermons right here. And we find out it's all about Jesus. It's not about other stuff. It's all about Jesus. And to explain the gospel, do you see what he did? Right, follow me on this. Try, try your best. Try your best. He started where they were. He started where they were. That's where it always needs to begin. I think sometimes when we're talking to people, we want to start where we are. Can't do that. You have to start where they are. And where they are may not be a good place. But you go there and you start where you are right now. And so the uh, seed of the gospel has to be planted in the soil of the heart, as Jesus told us. And the heart also has to be prepared. And so this is part of that cultivation of the harvest that we're talking about here. So where they are, where are these people? Where they are is they knew about Jesus. They all knew about him. They'd maybe seen some miracles that he worked. Maybe they had even heard a little bit of his teaching. Uh, they were hoping he would be the king, come in and throw the Roman government off their back. Uh, maybe some of them were in the crowd when he came down from the Mount of Olives that last week before he was crucified, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Obviously, many of them were also in that same crowd who were later on that week saying, away with him, crucify him. See, pretty fickle. They knew about Jesus. So here's what he does. If you look at this text, he makes a connection. This is so important. And when you can do this, this is powerful. Um, he makes it, they not only need to know that Jesus did this, that he healed this guy. Jesus, that one that died, uh, he's the one who healed this guy. They not only need to know that, but they need to know that in order to do it, the Father glorified him. And he connects everything he's saying about Jesus to them and to something that they had in common. What did they have in common? Well, their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He even says, our father. So he's identifying with them. Anytime you can kind of start where someone is and there's any way, sometimes you can't, but when you can identify with somebody, with something in common, it really helps to connect them and connect you from where they are and help connect them to the gospel and where God want, what God wants to show them. So he says that God had glorified, did you notice? He said God had glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, that should trigger something in their minds. Because these people, who they were, they were Jews who grew up studying the Old Testament all their life. And they knew those passages about the coming king, the coming anointed one. And that word anointed, that's the word that is translated as Messiah. Or in the Greek, Christ. 
means the same thing. Uh, he's this anointed king, this one that is coming, this deliverer. Did you get that? All the way back to Abraham, God promised that he's going to send someone that's going to be a, a blessing to all nations. God's heart has always been all people, okay? But in order to do that, God singled out one guy. So when God sends this one, you're going to know who he is because he's going to be a descendant of this one guy, Abraham, Right? Through you. Now, this is an old guy that him and his wife haven't been able to have any children. I mean, on Mother's Day, I mean, she thought about her own mom, but then also thought about how that she would like to have children, but has never been able to. And in that culture, it was really a difficult thing. But God says, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to take an old couple that's just so unlikely, you're going to have a baby. And through that baby that you're going to have, I'm going to bring someone into this world that's going to be a blessing to all nations. So it has to come through Abraham. And then that one baby was Isaac. So uh, Abraham did have other children, not with Sarah. Bad story. But anyway, it's through Isaac. I promise was through Isaac. And then, you remember, Isaac has two boys, right? Esau and Jacob. God eliminates 50% of the possibilities of who this is going to be when he says it's through Jacob. All right? So not just anybody can come along claiming to be this Messiah, this deliverer. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And God narrows it down even more by saying, he, 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 he eliminates 11 twelfths of the possibilities by saying it's going to be through your son Judah. Through Judah, that son, that it became a tribe, that line of people, that's who he's going to come through. And then out of all the families in that one tribe of Judah, he eliminates everybody down to one family line, David. He's going to come as, as in the world as a descendant of David. And so not just anybody showing up could claim to be the Messiah. And the thing about it is in that temple and in, in all their, their, their doings as a nation, they kept meticulous records. Anybody ever done this read through the Bible thing lately? That's good to do. Sometimes we just speed read, and I don't know how much we retain, but you get through it and all. But if you're new to the scriptures, and if you're new uh, to this kind of thing, don't start out like reading in Numbers or Leviticus or something like that. And you get in these parts about so-and-so, we got so-and-so and so-and-so. And it's like, oh, my goodness. But I want you to know that's part of the inspired text because all those names are there for a reason. Their meticulous records were kept. When Jesus was going around preaching and many were proclaiming him to be the what? Son of David. They're identifying as that one that was promised to come, the Messiah. There was no doubt about that. People tried to say different things about him, but there was no doubt about him being a descendant of David. In fact, Matthew and Luke both give us genealogies of Jesus. One traces through Mary, one traces through Joseph. So either way, in the flesh, he was a descendant of King David. He was the one. And so God marked it off and the prophets had spoken. And these people all knew about that. And they knew about the scriptures that were mysterious to them. Where Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 talked about how this one would come and he would be the suffering servant. That he would, he, by his stripes we would be healed. That all the iniquities of us all would be laid upon him and he would be Punished for our sins. They didn't understand about, but that was a big teaching. Isaiah 53 about this suffering servant. The one God would send, the servant. When he says here, his servant, he calls Jesus his servant. That's in verse 13. All right, let's take a look at it. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified who? His servant, Jesus. Now that word translated servant you could translate it a couple different ways, but most commonly as servant. 
who says your servant Jesus, whom you delivered over, and you, you guys, you're guilty, denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had Pilate decided to release him. And so he, he's identified him as that servant. That should trigger something because as they knew the scripture, they knew that suffering was also foretold. Isaiah had foretold it. And now it makes sense, doesn't it? We always had trouble understanding how he could both be the king and how he could be the suffering servant. But when you understand that he had to suffer and die for our sins first, and then he ascended back into heaven, but he is coming again. Those times are refreshing. He's coming as king, and he's going to rule and reign forever. Then it all fits, doesn't it? Look at verse 18, because he points out there again, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ, that's the Messiah, the anointed one, would suffer, he thus fulfilled that's what he's saying, you guys. You guys were actually a part of it. You didn't really understand it, but you were a part of fulfilling what God said was going to happen. And uh, he's the sin-bearing servant. And then not only does he make that connection with them, but he draws, a con- he draws contrasts. He draws contrast. He identifies him not only as a suffering servant that God had now exalted and he had ascended to heaven, but he points out something. So here's Jesus, the one who came to give life. Here's the one who came to die for you so that you could have your sins blotted out so that you could have life. But on your part, look what you did. They denied justice. Look at verse 14 and 15. You know, he says, you denied the holy and righteous one. He was the only one that lived perfect. He says, and you, you killed the author of life. And that author of life means he's the one, uh, he's the, he is the source of life. You killed him. So here's Jesus, who is the source of life and who is the author of life. And you are just people who want to kill. In fact, when Pilate was going to release him, you asked for a guy that was a killer Barabbas, remember, you asked for a murderer to be released and Jesus be put to death. But he didn't stay dead. And God proved who he was by raising him from the grave. He conquered death. Here's the one who has life. Here's the one who went down into the pits of death and and conquered it and came back to life. He's been resurrected. You guys are all about death. He's the one that came to give life. He's the author of life. You guys need to understand this. And, and, And so the thing about it is, is that what makes the good news good news is the fact that there is bad news. He's giving us some bad news here, right? Right? Without bad news, good news wouldn't be good news. It'd just be news. And here's the bad news. You killed him. God sent him here. He's the, prom- He's the one we've been looking for. He's the Messiah, the deliverer. And you chose a murderer and you killed him. But God raised him back to life. But you did this. You are guilty. You are guilty. You're guilty of rejecting who God sent you. You're guilty of killing Jesus. I don't think they liked hearing that. But it was the truth. It was the truth. They had sinned before God. And they were responsible for the death of the prince of life. But I got more bad news for us. So are you. And so am I. (laughs) Because as you read on in the New Testament, you find out that the reason he had to die is because of my sins and because of your sins. My sins killed Jesus, that he chose to die for our sins. So we're guilty as well, all of us, that he had to suffer and die in order to save us. All right. 
So now, let's get back to the good news, okay? Can we do that? The good news begins when he says, but God, in verse 15, raised him from the dead. And he said, guess what? Peter and these other guys said, guess what? I'm not just saying this, but we are personal witnesses. I'm not telling you something somebody told me that might be true. I was there. I saw him. I even touched him. I watched him die. I saw him put him in a tomb. And I touched him. I, I visited with him after he came back to life. Witness. Personal, firsthand eyewitness. And you know what? Not in the same way. But so are many of us. Because even though I didn't see in the flesh a resurrected Christ, I have experienced him. I have encountered him. I have a relationship with him. He's as real to me as anybody, more real than anybody I can see and touch. I've had an experience. I am a witness, and you are a witness as well of the resurrected Christ who died on the cross for our sins. That's part of that message. We're witnesses. In fact, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse before he ascended back into heaven, he said... You are going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Every nook and cranny of this planet. You're going to, what does a witness do? A witness testifies. You testify to what you know, what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've experienced. Your testimony is your testimony. People may not know if they can, uh, uh, if they can put confidence in the word of God. And it may take time for them to sort through that. But they know you, and they know whether you're for real or not. They know you're not perfect, they, and you need to be real. But, but they see something coming through your life. You're a witness. If you claim to be a, Christ, a Christian, you are a witness. You're either a good witness or a bad witness. Okay? But you're a witness. And it says that in verse 16, he makes them know for sure. It says, and his name. By faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and you know. It is by his name. It is by the name of Jesus. We didn't do this. It's nothing on us. I mean, y'all have never seen anything like this before, but it wasn't us. It was him in his name. Now, he's not physically here. You're not seeing him, but it was him. And it was under his name. Now, what does that mean? He says, and, and, and he points out clearly that salvation is received by faith in his name. And we like to, now, when we talk about the name of Jesus, I don't mean name of Jesus is some, like, magic word that you throw around, like, name of Jesus, like, abracadabra. You know? It's not a magic word, a magic phrase. Here's what it means when we call on the name of Jesus. And when we proclaim the name of Jesus. And we put faith in the name of Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. Here's what it means. It means when you claim his name, you're putting all of you and all you do under his authority. If you're doing something in his name. See, if you go out and you do something in my name that I don't agree with, I don't want any part of it, right? If you're going to do something in my name, it needs to be something that I'm in on. So when we pray, when we act in Jesus' name, that means we're putting ourselves under his authority. And it is his power, his authority, his truth coming through us. We're submitted to him. And so he has a great object lesson there. It was in the name of Jesus. It's, it's Jesus who did this. And there's an, he says, in the name of Jesus, this guy whom you know. I mean, it's hard to deny because the guy they had seen crippled all their life with his legs all curled up was standing right there. I wonder if whenever he got to that part of the sermon, it says, and this guy who you know, if he pointed at him and the guy goes, you know. I would do a kick or something, but it could go bad at this age that I am now. You know, I'd hate to pull a hamstring during a sermon. Wow. But, but can you imagine the impact of that? 
You've got an object lesson here of the power of God. And he's connecting that. It's not about this guy getting his legs back. It's about who Jesus is. And it's about salvation through faith in his name. That is who he is. It's about all of who he is. But they had rejected Christ. They had said they denied him. They were sinners. They didn't understand. He says, you did it in ignorance. But here's the point. Even though they didn't understand, and even though the rulers didn't fully understand, get this, they were still responsible. You might say, well, I didn't mean this. I didn't mean that. I don't know. Listen, you're still responsible. God holds you responsible. Just like we're all responsible for our sins. It was for all of our sins that he suffered and he died. So it all fits. <laughs> He's letting them know everything you've known all your life, this all fits with it. It's what the prophets that you read in Sunday school, so to speak. It's what they talked about. Now they were, these people were in ignorance, as he pointed out, but now their understanding is beginning to be enlightened. He says, you know, this is what the prophets taught, and they're beginning to connect the dots. Now the lights are coming on, and so guess what? Now it's time to have faith. Faith that produces action. It's not just say like, yeah, it sounds good. It's more than that. Faith is trusting, submitting, and relying. And they're finding out we're in worse shape than the lame man. Because... It's one thing to be lame physically, but we're lame spiritually. In fact, we're dead spiritually. They realize that they're in worse shape. And so he calls for a response. And if you get down to this verse 19, now he's laid it out there. He calls for a response. He calls for action, a decision that we must make, all right? And he does the same for us today. He says, repent, therefore. What are they to do? Here it is. Here's a key part of this, that has to be involved. It's called repentance. In other words, you got to take ownership of the truth about you. He says to repent and turn back or be converted. The word translated in some translations, be converted, literally in the Greek means turn back. Uh, of what are they to repent? It's the sin he's been talking about. What sin? That sin of rejecting Jesus. That's the sin. And ultimately, folks, I want to tell you, that is ultimately the sin that sends people to hell. All the other sins come as a result of that one sin, but it's that one sin of rejecting Jesus who is the only one that can cover your sins, the only one who died to give you life. Rejecting Jesus is the ultimate sin that causes people to go to hell, according to the Bible. That's it. And, and it's, uh, you know, uh, as I said, all other sins are a result of it. And it's not merely that you've done wrong. It's not that you're admitting that you've done wrong. It's saying, I know I'm not, I'm not just done wrong. I am wrong on the inside. I'm a sinner. It's taking ownership of that. And be converted. And, and see, and be converted it means to turn. Now, the word for repent, that word translated there literally means, it's a word that means to change, to change the mind, to turn the mind. In the New Testament, it indicates a turning, a change of thinking and feeling, which results in a change of behavior. And we just finished doing a series on renewing the mind. And it's all about sanctification. And it comes from repentance of how that, that now we can even study as people begin to think differently and to be disciplined and follow the Lord's teachings that they can even map out with scans, changes, physical changes in the brain. 
as our mind changes and our heart changes, it changes the neural pathways in our brain. Things that were habits that we couldn't seem to control seem to get weaker now. And as we deny them and as we focus on the Lord's power, things that we weren't doing that we should be doing, those connections in our brain to those parts of our brain get stronger. We've, we talked about that. That's what this is. This is that's what this is. When he says repent, it's a turning, a changing of the mind. The word converted means to turn back. So you're changing and you're turning from your direction and you're turning to God. You're turning from your sin. You're turning from trusting in yourself. You're turning from doing your own thing to trusting in the one who created you and the one who died to save you. Did you notice here there's a, as I read this whole thing, are you still with me? Okay, good. Uh, And we're getting about there. Okay, so don't lose me now. Uh, There's a turning To and there's a turning from. Because he says in verse 19 to be converted and uh, and he's saying to turn. He's talking about turning to God. And in verse 26, he says that God, having sent, has raised up his servant, sent you him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So we turn to God and we turn from our own sinfulness and wickedness. So see, I'm turning. I'm changing. That's what repentance is. All right. Now, it's not enough just to say, yeah, I believe this is literally true. It it involves more than that because it's that their sin may be blocked out. He said in verse 19 and times of refreshing come from the Lord that they may be ready when Jesus returns. And they thought he could come back any day. And if they thought that in their day, we sure need to realize that is a possibility in our day. The times of refreshing, man, we could preach a whole nother sermon on that. But he points out again the fulfilled prophecy. It's all in the book. Check it out. A lot of people say, well, oh, I have a problem with the Bible, this and this. And you heard a college professor say that. And you had a college professor say that. And you read a book about this and an article about that. You, I want to challenge you. You get in the book and you check it out yourself. I'm going to help you. But I'm not going to tell you what you've got to believe. I can tell you what I believe. I can tell you what our church believes. But you've got to figure it out. You've got to get in there. You need to personally. I tell you what, everybody owes it to themselves once in their life to check it out. If you're going to check anything out, if you don't want to be messed up, if you don't want to be missing it, if you don't want to make a mistake in any one thing in this world, it ought to be this. Because the stakes are really high. Your eternal soul. So I think you owe it to yourself. You don't want to be wrong on this. You need to check it out. And that's what Peter is saying. Check it out. It's right there in the book that you've read all your life. What the prophets said and what they said thousands of years ago. It's happened. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Check it out. All the prophets from Samuel, he said, all the rest of them. It's all recorded. So it's not some new idea. It's connected all the way back to Abraham. All of it connects back to this. Have you noticed that? Paul talks about this later on. It's all connected right back to, he says in verse 25, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant. God made a covenant that that God made with your fathers saying all the way back to Abraham. It's going beyond the law, going beyond Moses, all the way back to Abraham. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth earth be blessed. Guys, this is it. It's through Jesus and through that message of salvation. When we take ownership and we repent and we trust in him, you're going to receive this blessing that he's talked about. Now, it's not uncommon to hear uh, about people saying this. or I meet people who make a profession of faith. They say, I believe in Jesus. And they profess to be born again. And you know what? None of us are perfect. And we, we all from that point start growing. And the Lord works in our life to make us new. 
I've got to be willing to turn from self to him. But I got to tell you, um, I'm glad he hasn't given up on me. There's a lot still to be done here. But sometimes you see people talk about it, and there's never any desire to change anything. In other words, I want Jesus just to punch my ticket to heaven, but I'm going to, do, I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to do things my way, and I'm going to live my way. I don't care what the Bible says or anything else. When we realize that everything he said in here is for our blessing and our protection. Do you think the commandments that God gave and the instructions that God gave are to keep us from having fun? You know, and then you need to understand in the Old Testament the difference between the ceremonial law and the judicial law and then the moral law. There's different things. And Jesus fulfilled all of it, okay? But the way he said to live is the way it works because he's the designer. He's the creator. He's trying not to take anything from you. He's trying to keep some blessing for you by his instructions. So please understand that that's what real freedom is. And, uh, but some people will say, you know, they've been born again, but their lives are no different from everybody else in the world. They've never turned. They've never turned from the sin that characterized their lives before they professed to be born again. Now listen to me. I'm talking about in their morals, in their marriages, in the way they raise their children, in their lifestyles, in their choices, the way they spend their time. Listen to me. The way they spend their money. Really no different than the rest of our pagan culture. Except for one thing, they occasionally go to church on Sunday. That's the only difference in their lives from everybody else. That's a contradiction to what he's saying here. There are three New Testament words used for repentance, and they occur in noun or verb form over 60 times. This is important. This is a part of the message you've got to get. In fact, when John the Baptist first came, people needed to get ready for the Messiah, and they needed to turn. They needed to turn around. They needed to turn from the way they were thinking and the way they were living and turn to the truth and the light of God. John the Baptist came. What was his message that he preached? I'll show it to you. Matthew 3, 1 and 2 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What was his message? And saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then a short time later, Jesus shows up. And Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom that he's come to bring in, to usher in. And what does Jesus say? Look at it in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's beseeching us to repent. So what does repentance involve? Does that mean I just confess it? Yeah, I'm a sinner. Sorry. Sorry. Huh? Uh, That's part of it. That's part of it. Sorrow is part of it. It's normal part of repentance. But you know what? It's been possible. I found out in my life, I'm just going to be honest here, it's possible to be sorry for your sin and confess that sin, but not really repent of that sin. There's got to be a willingness at least to turn from that attitude, from that action, whatever it is. Okay? Listen, Judas Iscariot was sorry that he betrayed Jesus. Did you know that? He was so sorry that it says that in Matthew 27, 5, Judas, he said, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and he went and hanged himself. He was sorry, but he didn't repent, did he? He didn't accept the truth and the salvation of Jesus. Later on, uh, not later on, earlier on, we read the story way back in the Old Testament about Esau. Jacob, remember, Esau sold his birthright for a meal. Remember that? Now, now Joe, uh, Jacob uh, tricked him. But, but that birthright was connected to the promise that was connected to what God said to Abraham that we just read. Did you know that? And it didn't mean anything to Esau. And it says in Hebrews that Esau 
found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. He was sorry things went like they did, but he never really came to the place of truly repenting and getting his heart aligned with God. Paul told the Corinthians that sorrow can lead to repentance, and it is a valuable thing. So being sorry, being convicted, and being sorry for our sins is important. We're going to go through this quickly. He says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow... There's sorrow that's not godly. There's sorrow that you shouldn't have because you're believing the lies of Satan. But we're talking about godly sorrow here. Produces repentance. You see, it can, it can result in repentance. So that sorrow is part of it. But repentance leads to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow that you have in this world, all it ends up is with death. Did you notice salvation? Re- repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted of. I've heard, and in myself I've said, but I've heard a lot of people talk about things they've regretted. And regrets, regrets, regret. But I've never heard anybody say that they regretted repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus. I've never heard of anybody sorry of set free from bondage to sin and self. So repentance is a turning of the whole person. A whole person to God. So we see a connection between faith and repentance. Did you see that? Um... You can't, it's been said that they're, they're different sides of the same coin. You can't really have faith without repentance. And you can't really repent unless you have faith. You get it? If you really are trusting him, you're going to turn. If you're not willing to turn, you're not really having faith. Um, listen to one thing that Paul said to Thessalonians. I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture up there. I hope you're getting this. He's talking to the Thessalonians. These people were pagans when he first met them. But he said, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And like, I don't even have to tell people you guys trust Christ because they've seen it in your life. Okay. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you, this is their testimony, how you turned to God. Did you see that? Turned, turned. That's what we're talking about. That's what repentance involves. It involves a turning. You turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God. That's powerful. That's, you see it right there. See, Paul, he didn't preach, just believe and trust Jesus. And maybe later on y'all turn from idols, but they turned from idols to the real God. So here's the point. You ready for the point? To genuinely trust Christ. If you're really trusting in who he is and what he's done, you must turn. Repentance. Turn from your sin to him. Not that you're not going to struggle, but you want to follow him. Because some may verbally profess to believe Christ but we hold on to our selfish, false ideas about God and His Word and the way we're going to live our lives. If you genuinely have faith, your life's going to take a turn. I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm on my way to Springfield. I go down to Highway 5, I hit 60. And it's four lane. Speed limit is 65 miles an hour. I set my cruise control. And I'm going along. I'm headed to Springfield. And I realized, wait a minute, I have an appointment in West Plains. Now, if you know your geography around here, West Plains is the other direction. It is east and south. And I'm all upset about it. I'm going to miss my appointment 
in West Plains. And I'm so upset at that. I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. Help me. I call you on the phone and you answer and say, what's going on? I say, hey man, I need prayer. I need prayer right now. I need you to pray for me because I am headed to Springfield and I'm supposed to be, I'm almost to Seymour for crying out loud. And I'm supposed to be in West Plains here at nine o'clock. You might pray for me, but you know what? You're not going to take me very serious if I don't put my blinker on and slow down and get off at the next exit and cross back over and go the other direction. You can pray for me. I can be sorry. I can whine about missing my appointment, but nothing's going to happen until I hit the, hit the signal, slow down and change directions. It's the same thing in my life. Oh, pray for me. You got to pray for me. I'm headed to the, listen, listen, we're going to pray. But listen, until you, until you take that responsibility until see God, God's got the power to turn you. God has got the power. He can heal the lame man. He raised Jesus from the dead. He's got the power to turn your life around, but nothing's going to happen until you decide you want to repent. Therefore, he said, and we find that this is when the party starts, folks. Oh, the thing we feared, the thing we didn't want to let go of. When we finally let go, we find like, what was I waiting on? In fact, he says in Luke 15, 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. I mean, one person repents. There is a party going on in heaven right now. Yeah, in fact, he says later on in the same chapter, he says, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When somebody repents here, there is hooping and hollering and rejoicing going on in the very presence of God among the holy angels. That's how big a deal it is. And so that may be today that there's some things that we've been sorry about. There's some things that, you know, we understand the gospel, but, but here's the thing that's got to happen. We've got to turn. We've got to repent. I've got to take ownership. And it starts with a prayer. But then that's just the beginning. It means that when we walk out of here, we're going to walk a different direction. It means we're going to stay in the word. We're going to stay in fellowship with the saints. We're not going to forsake the gathering together with one another and studying and praying and, and, and applying what he's showing us. This is a journey we're all on together that he wants us to help each other with. And so here's the heart of the message that's going to lead to the harvest. We've got to say the same thing John the Baptist said, same thing Jesus said, is you have to not only know this truth, but you've got to receive it you got to repent and turn it's got to be a turning let's pray father help us 